Well, I'd like to, uh, to define some terms before we, uh, before we jump right in or look at, at some of the parameters of this conversation. So let's talk about poverty in the United States for just a minute. Let's get some context for, uh, for where we're headed. Poverty in our country is defined, and I'm using the, the, the government's statistics, their analysis, uh, their research, uh, mostly from the 2014 census information is where I got a great deal of our data that I'm going to share with you this morning. But poverty is measured in the United States by an annual income of less than $24,230 for a family of four. So if you divide that, it's like saying that, that you're in poverty if you only have 6000 some odd dollars a year on which to live. And that sounds like poverty to me. I don't know how that hits you, but I'm not sure how uh, anybody could get by on that amount of money. So I have, uh, I have no issue with the way the government has defined uh, their portion of the conversation for us this morning. I think it's accurate. 14.8% of citizens of the United States live in poverty. Of that group, 21% of children in the United States live in poverty. One of every five children in this country are living at or below the poverty line. 48.1 million Americans live in food insecure households. I'm going to tell you what the definition of this is. It's not going to be on the screen, so don't look for the slide. It's, it's not there. Food insecurity, as defined uh, by the government, is this limited or uncertain availability of nutritionally adequate and safe foods, or limited and uncertain ability to acquire acceptable foods in socially acceptable ways. It means that, that you, you live in a house where you might have to steal if you want to have dinner tonight. That is a, that is a <clears throat> excuse me, a food insecure household. 15.3 of these 48 million Americans who live in food insecure household are children. There are eight states in our nation who are above the national average of food insecure household. The national average is 14.3. We happen to live in one of those states. We live in a state where 16.8% of our neighbors, friends, relatives, acquaintances, or simply fellow Missouri citizens who are strangers to us live in this scenario. Well, that's poverty at broad brushstrokes. Let's talk about homelessness for just a moment. We're going to put a chart up there for you, and I don't know how well you can see it, but on any given night over in the right, upper right-hand corner, there are about two quarter, or, uh, three quarters of a million Americans who are homeless on any given night. 155,000 Americans are chronically homeless. 3.5 million will experience homelessness at one point during the year, and then those lower two center uh, uh, statistics are looking at folks who live on the brink of homelessness, and those numbers are significant. If you look at poverty, if, you're, if you want to take an honest look at poverty, uh, you can say a couple things. One, you can say, well, it certainly isn't the majority of folks in our country, and that would be true. It is certainly a minority of folks. Uh, you could also see, and we didn't bring this up, but it crosses uh, all color lines, both white and black, Asian and Hispanic, live below the poverty line. However, if you look at those numbers, uh, it is disproportionate to minorities versus whites. If you're going to talk about poverty, you have to be willing to take an honest look at it because most people sitting in this room don't fall into that category. Maybe perhaps no one in this room falls into that category this morning. 
But we must ask the question as disciples of Jesus, and, and this sermon is for disciples of Jesus this morning, if your faith is not in Christ, if you're still thinking about it, if you're still on that journey, you're still wondering or perhaps skeptical, uh, the, the ears you should have this morning are how do people who claim to follow Jesus, how do they react to this type of scenario? What is our responsibility before God? Well, let me give you a couple of general guidelines out of Proverbs. Proverbs 31 says, open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Proverbs 19 says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. If Jesus walked up to you and you knew it was Jesus, and he had a sign that said, food for the homeless, and he asked you for $5, my guess is that you and I would probably give that to him immediately, right? Well, whoever lends to the poor lends to Jesus. I don't know that I've ever really looked at it very carefully like that. Something to bear in mind. These are general notions. One other one out of Matthew chapter 27, Jesus said to his followers, the poor you will always have with you. I believe that's an important verse to safeguard my heart against discouragement. This is not a question that will ultimately be answered this side of heaven. We will not stamp out poverty across the world. It, it, uh, the world is too broken. The world has too many people that are too greedy in order for us to absolutely take care of this issue in our lifetime. And yet God calls us to follow him into this journey in order to seek to make a difference for him. Now those are general observations. Those are general directives uh, out of Scripture, that we should be caring for the poor. They will, there will always be poor among us, and our hearts should always uh, have an attitude of following God and loving God by loving them well. But let's get into the nitty-gritty of it, because poverty is not the same for everyone. The causes of poverty are not the same for everyone. Therefore, the responses to poverty ought not be the same. I'm going to give you four definitions of poverty according to Scripture this morning. Now we're, we're setting the government's uh, information aside, and we're going to go to the Bible. How does the Bible define reasons for poverty? Well, the first one is a word that I love to use, and nobody uses it anymore. It's the sluggard, right? Isn't that, you don't, even if you don't know what sluggard is, you know what sluggard is. That's just a great word, right? A sluggard is a slothful person. A sluggard is a lazy person. A, sloth, a sluggard is a person that simply won't do for themselves, right? So the desire of the sluggard kills him. Why? His hands refuse to labor, right? The sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek a harvest, but he will have nothing, right? So the, the, the sluggard refuses to get up and go to work, and yet he'll look around at the time of harvest and say, where's my share. Where's my portion? Solomon goes a little bit further in another passage in Proverbs 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in the harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? It's interesting, and maybe you caught it, and the English reflects the ancient Hebrew there. The ant is in the, the ant that's the hard worker is in the feminine, and the guy laying on the couch is in the male, okay? <laughs> Just apply it however you want to, okay? But the sluggard is one reason 
for poverty. By the way, after we go through the reasons, we're going to come back and talk about what should the response be to each one of these. So the first person that we meet who, who, is, who is struggling with not having enough is the person who refuses to work. The second person that's identified in Scripture that is affected by poverty is the person who's known as the simple one, okay? Proverbs chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, where Solomon is explaining why he sat down to write this information in the first place. And he said this, I want to make sure that, that others know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing and righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. And then one other passage in Proverbs chapter 7, Solomon says, I've seen among the simple, I've perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense. So Solomon said, I've looked around and I've noticed something. Those who are, who, who are the younger ones among us tend to be the ones who do more foolish things. You know, you, you expect, we, we had our, our uh, session meeting on Monday night, our elders were meeting, and we were sitting on the back patio downstairs over there uh, on the outside of the building, and there was a high school group that comes in and, and uses our building on, on Monday nights, and I just happened to look up during our meeting, and then a pickup truck was going by, and, and it wasn't going very fast, but there was a kid on the back, right? And he's standing on the back, and he's holding on to the, the hatchback, and he's waving to everybody like he's in a parade. And you go, you know what? That kind of makes sense. He's a high school kid. That's kind of, kind of what you do. I, I did that and a whole lot worse when, when I was in high school, right? But if it went by and it was one of our elders in his mid-50s who was waving, I would say, now there goes a fool, right? You know, you ought to know better by now, right? And that's the notion of the simple. The simple doesn't mean that there's something wrong, that, that there's a mental disability. It's simply speaking of a person who lacks experience. It's speaking about a young person. A person that needs to, to learn and grow, but, but so far in life, they, they kind of think, you know, things will work out for them pretty well, but they haven't really dug into deeper understanding yet because they just haven't had that much life yet in them. So the simple person is, is the young person, and that person can come to poverty. That person can, lacking sense, can be uh, finding themselves going without. The third person or the third group of folks that Scripture identifies as being uh, struck by poverty, are the widow and the orphan. These are folks who are, who are truly needy. These are folks who maybe have a handicap of some kind, or maybe they were born into poverty, and, and they, their road out of poverty is not a simple or an easy one. It's a very, very difficult one. These are folks that truly are disadvantaged by something that's happened to them in life, not something that they've done. You know, you can look at the sluggard and go, well, you kind of brought that upon yourself. You could have you gotten up and you could have gone out there and worked. But these are folks that truly uh, are handicapped either, or either by society's norms or by something that's happened to them. And here's what God says about his attitude towards these folks. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless, the widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. I'll give you one other verse out of Proverbs chapter 15. The Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. The notion there is that uh, if, a, if a man died and, and left something to his wife in Solomon's day, he lived in an, an agrarian society. So most of what was passed on through inheritance was land. 
And if you're a widow and you come out the next morning and somebody's kind of moved your boundary stakes, you might not have any recourse to, to go and get that corrected. You might go to court and find out that the rich landowner next door moved your stakes, but he plays golf with the judge and he's giving them a little on the side and you're out of luck, right? The Lord protects the boundaries of the widow. He looks out for the, for the rights of those who can't look out for themselves. So we have the sluggard, the simple, the widow or the orphan, and then the fourth cause for poverty is oppression, is actually wrongdoing. So Proverbs 22 says this, whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth to the rich or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. And, and the notion there is not necessarily that they'll come to poverty in, they'll, in their lifetime. What Solomon is pointing to there is the judgment of God, that you will have to stand before God and be judged by him someday. And if you've been a person that oppressed the poor, if you've been a person that's lined your pocket uh, by taking advantage of those that have less protection under the law, there is one before whom you will stand and must give account. And James says it this way in the New Testament. James says this, come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming on you. And again, he's thinking about the judgment of God. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, those who came in and, and were sharecroppers and, and, and took care of the harvest for them, right? The, who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts, right? There are people who are poor because other people keep them down. It's not that they're unwilling to work. It's not that they, they aren't uh, passionate about trying to make their way in this world. It's not that they, they don't have any gifts or talents or abilities that would make them employable. But rather, there are those who are already wealthy and are simply making themselves more wealthy by taking advantage of others. These are the four reasons that Scripture gives for poverty, how do we respond? Well, I want to give you three words for our response this morning. And this is where the, the, the words here are a little bit different than the sermon title that's in your, in your bulletin this morning. But these are the, the three words uh, that I ultimately landed on. We are, when it comes to poverty and our response, we are to be, in some cases, inactive. In other cases, we are to be proactive. And in other cases, we are to be reactive. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a couple minutes now. We're going to go back through uh, these four different uh, groups that are experiencing poverty and ask what should we do? How should we react for them? So let's talk about the sluggard. And when it comes to the sluggard, God says you ought to be inactive towards the sluggard. You are not responsible for caring for the sluggard who refuses to care for themselves. Go back to what Proverbs said. The desire of the sluggard kills him for his hand refuses to work. The slugger does not plow an autumn. He will seek a harvest, but have nothing. God offers no relief for the sluggard. You can't find another place in the book of Proverbs or anywhere else in the scriptures where it says, so even though he won't work, give him a break and, and, and put him on the dole and just let it, you know, take care of him, right? Scripture doesn't say that. In fact, in the New Testament, God teaches us the exact opposite reaction. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul is writing to some friends that he had visited, and he had spent some time in their city. A lot of them had become Christians under his preaching. So Paul was a pastor by trade. And yet here's what he says about his visit to the Thessalonians. You know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread 
without paying for it. But with the labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to anyone. We give this command. If anyone is unwilling to work, let him not eat. Right? So if I have a lazy streak in my, in, in my constitution, I ought to take heed this morning to this warning. Right? God offers no relief, nor does he command his people to spend their resources with which he has entrusted them, their energy, their effort, and their hours helping someone who refuses to help themselves. Nor does he suggest uh, anything other than hard work on the part of his disciples by the example of the Apostle Paul. So when it comes to the slugger, uh, we're to be inactive. So uh, when I think about my own children growing up, and I think about times where they wanted to do something, and we wanted to teach a little bit of responsibility, uh, we said, hey, you, you want to do something special, and it's going to cost a little bit extra, a little bit more than kind of what you, what you get when you live here. Uh, you're going to need to do a little bit extra. And here, if you do this, this chore or these chores, you know, here's the, the money you're going to get. And sometimes they would do the chores, right? Sometimes they'd say, we really want to do that, and there's the money. And other times, they wouldn't get around to it. They'd be too busy. And then they'd come at the last minute and say, Mom, Dad, you just wouldn't believe what happened and how I couldn't get the job done. And I, I still want to go and, and do this, and it'll be so much fun. And, and we just you know, cut me a break this one time. I'll do twice as much work tomorrow, right? And it was just so endearing to me to be able to say, Go to the ant, you sluggard. <laughs> and consider her ways. How long will you lie in the bed? <laughs> I am sure you had a great time Friday night, <laughs> and you're going to have a great time Saturday night here with mom and dad. <laughs> In fact, let's go and do those chores now anyway, <laughs> right? I could be really evil to my children sometimes, but, but scripture says that, that the sluggard is, is not, that lifestyle is not to be reinforced. It's not to be seen as, you know, how many of us as parents sometimes will go, oh, okay, I don't want to listen to you gripe. Go ahead. No, we're, we're going to come to that in a minute when it comes to the simple. We're actually doing harm to a person when we help them when they should be working for themselves. So inactivity towards the sluggard. However, when it comes to the simple, we are to be proactive, right? We're to be proactive. Look at Proverbs chapter 9. Wisdom has built her house. Notice the, the, the gender there as well, right? Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. Seven is a number in scripture for completeness and wholeness and godliness. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has set her table. She has sent her young women to call out into the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. To the simple, we are to teach wisdom. We are to share information, life stories, life lessons in order that those who have not yet experienced those things can gain some understanding before they experience them in order that they might learn the value of work, learn the value of using the gifts and the abilities that God has given to them to provide for themselves and eventually one day perhaps even provide for a family if they should end up uh, in, in a marriage with, with children. We are responsible to teach our children. So I'm going to come back to our kids for just a minute because one of the things that, that we did with our children when they got into about, you know, sixth grade, we said, 
what do we want them to look like when they're 18, when they walk out of our door? You know, we want them to be able to, to do some things. We want them to be able to fend for themselves. They ought to be able to, to do a load of laundry and, and know how to, how to do that correctly. They ought to be able to, you don't have checkbooks anymore, but, you know, balance a checkbook. They ought to be able to handle their money. They ought to be able to know how to, how to do some chores. And so one of the things we did at the start of the school year is we would give them X amount of dollars for the clothes. Now, we would, we would get the basics, but we'd say, now you get to pick you know, kind of what you want to wear this year, and here's how much money you have. And it was a certain amount of money. It was enough to get a couple of pair of jeans and a few shirts. You know, it, it was enough to, to, you know, they would have the wardrobe they needed for the school year. Now, we then said, it's now your responsibility to go and buy. It's your responsibility to spend this money in the way you think appropriate. And, and every one of our kids at some point made the same mistake. They saw something really bright and shiny, right? It might have been, it might have been the newest pair of Nikes, right? It, you know, my, it's just the thing that they, they didn't have money. They didn't have their own, but now, you know, I got, got a couple hundred dollars in my pocket. Now I'm going to spend 175 on it on tennis shoes, right? <laughs> and $25 on a t-shirt and, you know, a belt. <laughs> and now I got to wear last year's pants. Well, last year's pants, my, my legs grew and they're too short. And, and, and Cindy would say to me, you're going to look awful funny at school, <laughs> right? What was she doing? She was teaching them a lesson, right? She didn't feel that great about it, right? She wasn't happy that they made that choice. But how are they going to learn unless we allow them to feel the repercussions of their choices? The simple need, uh, and I'll talk specifically for parents and for grandparents, they, they need folks around them who let them feel the sting of those mistakes in small ways so that as they get older, they don't repeat those same mistakes. They leave their simple ways behind. What does verse 6 say? Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Uh, let me remind uh, all of us that we take vows to, to raise our children. We baptize our children. It's not just mom and dad who stand up in front of the congregation. Well, it is mom and dad who stand up in front of the congregation, Right? But, but we all, in a sense, are godparents. We all take that promise that we're going to love the children of this church well. And older moms and dads who are now grandparents, there are a lot of young families in this church that maybe could use somebody to come alongside them and encourage them in this and, and share with them how you uh, raised your children. We need to look out for each other in order that the ones who are simple now, who are entrusted to our care, who we love so deeply are able to, at the right moment, leave their simple ways and learn the way of wisdom. So we're to be proactive when it comes to the simple. But for these last two, these are scenarios that have already unfolded. Uh, the widow and the orphan, that's already happened. And we're to be reactive in our response to poverty when it comes to these last two categories. To the widow and the orphan. Okay, we go back to, to Deuteronomy chapter 10. He executes justice for the fatherless. And the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Now comes the command from God to his people. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. One of the ways that we love God is by caring for the widow and the orphan. One of the ways we hold fast to God is to have hearts of mercy and compassion and care. Anthony quoted this verse at the beginning of the service in James chapter 1. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit widows and orphans in their affliction. That doesn't mean stop by and say hello. It means care for them in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. 
We are to be reactive when we see those who are suffering, when we see those that cannot help themselves. We are to make sure that our resources that God has entrusted to us are used for their care. We are to be generous to the widow and to the orphan for those who cannot do for themselves. When you leave this morning and you walk out into the atrium, there are going to be several tables set up there. And there are different ministries of Green Tree that specifically target the widow and the orphan for care. And if you're here this morning, you're like, you know, I feel convicted by God's word that I could do something about this. Uh, beyond maybe just giving some money to someone who, who, is, who is in need, I want you to stop by one of those tables and talk with those folks. These are active ministries in, in, through Green Tree in the St. Louis area that are ongoing right now. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. It's right there for you. But take a minute and stop by. If you can't read that verse and say, you know what, I, I, I visit widows and orphans in their distress. If you can't say yes to that, then stop by and let them chat with you a little bit. And maybe you'll find a place where you can begin to follow God in this, where you can begin to be used by him. We're reacting to the, to the situations in which people find themselves, uh, whether in prison or uh, through our Homes of Hope trip or a variety of different places that we can serve by reacting to poverty, by alleviating the hurt of someone else. But then there's this final group, those who are oppressed. Zechariah chapter seven says this, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. We're not simply to say, you know, that, that, that's not right. That, you know, that law is unjust or that person is being treated unfairly. Isn't that a shame? We're actually to be, to be active in showing mercy and showing kindness for standing up for someone who can't stand up for themselves or they can't stand up for themselves, but they just don't have any power in that particular sphere. And they need someone to be an advocate, a voice for them. And we have the ability to do that. God says, do the kind thing. Do the merciful thing. Be known as a people who are gracious and who are compassionate. Isaiah chapter 1 says the following. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Well, how, how have we been doing evil? Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's case. There is the reaction of the people of God to, to look for and to, and to correct laws that are unjust. We have, we have lawyers, and it's not just reserved to lawyers, but certainly you that know the legal profession have the opportunity to represent us well, to represent Christ well and say, wait a minute, that's not right. And we can actually do something about it. We could actually argue on behalf of someone. Think about defending the poor. And I was thinking about it this week, and you know, how, how would I defend the poor? I mean, I'm not sure that I would even know how to, how to go about doing that. And yet I, I think if we're willing to take a, a good hard look at ourselves, we can find even with our own community, uh, there have been and probably will continue to be opportunities to defend the poor. I was reading uh, again this week the history of Meacham Park, which is just to our, to our south uh, uh, neighborhood uh, that was established actually 
1891 uh, by a, a gentleman who, his last name was Meacham, and he, and he came from Tennessee to St. Louis, and he bought 158 acres, which today is, uh, or, or was known as Meacham Park. It's smaller than that today. Uh, and he began to smell, sell plots to people, and that's, that was how it began in the late uh, 1800s, uh, in the 1890s. In 1968, Meacham Park had a, had a population of over 1,300 people. Uh, now think about this, 1968, there's, there's a man walking on the moon that summer. We've come a long way by 1968, uh, but there's no sewer system in Meacham Park. There, there, there's no, no plumbing that is connected to you know, city ordinances because they weren't part of the city of Kirkwood at that time. They had petitioned to become part of the city of Kirkwood, but were refused again and again and again. All the way through the late 1980s, Meacham Park folks asked to be part of Kirkwood. They could have fire. They could have police protection. They could have uh, sewer service. They would have all the things that you and I take for granted every day of our lives, only to be turned down again and again and again until the big box store showed up and they wanted 55 acres of that property. And then the city of Kirkwood was very, very quick to jump on that boat. Now, I love my city. I don't care about you people from Webster. <laughs> I do. But, I, but I, I'm proud of Kirkwood. But not when it comes to that. We allowed our, our greed. We allowed our love of money to control the day. And so now what's left of Meacham Park, yeah, they have fire service and they have police service. So we can look ourselves in the mirror and say, well, they're better off today than they were before. But what's really in our hearts? And my, the question I have, because I'm not throwing rocks at the city fathers, is to ask, where were the Christians when that happened? I was living here. Where was I? Why didn't I stand up and say, this doesn't quite sound right. Could we go back and rehash this and make sure people are going to be taken care of? I, I, could have, I could have carried my sign, right? Well, I can't do anything about that today, but I certainly can ask the question this morning for you and for me. This is not anti-Kirkwood, let's go storm City Hall. This is where the Christians today. And this is where God's planted us, brothers and sisters. For better or for worse, this is our home. We have neighbors all around us that don't know Jesus. And that's the primary need of this, of this generation and every generation is to know Jesus. But scripture says very clearly that our witness in caring for the poor, for those who can't take care of themselves, will be something that is used to point people to Christ. So we had a little dinner in here on Friday night for a bunch of kids who couldn't afford dinner before prom. And a bunch of them didn't show up because they weren't quite sure how it was going to be. I think next year we're going to have a room full. But there were a whole bunch of people from Green Tree that were serving here, and there were a whole bunch of high school teachers from Kirkwood High School that came and volunteered their time. And you know what the high school teacher said? I've never seen a church that would do something like this. Why would you care about this? I don't say that to pat ourselves on the back, because that was one measly little dinner. And, I, and I'm not downplaying it either. Thank you for those of you that served. But friends, there's a broken world and a poor world all around us, and we are responsible we're responsible to care for that world, to point folks to Jesus. And when we do things like, like tutoring, when we do things like have a dinner for some kids that couldn't afford a dinner, all those little things begin to add up and people begin to see Jesus. And people begin to ask questions about their own faith and about their need for a Savior. And God will use that to draw people into his kingdom and to bring glory to himself 
and then to have more folks on hand who begin to think about how can we care for those who can't care for themselves. Remember what Jesus said about himself and his earthly ministry? Let's go to Luke's gospel if we could. Jesus says this. He's talking about himself. He's talking, he says, God, the Father sent me to do what? To proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. When we love those and we care for those actively who cannot care for themselves, we're following our Lord's example. After all, we were the ones who were spiritually bankrupt. We were the ones who were lost for all of eternity. We were the ones who were oppressed by our sin and our rebellion against God. We were the ones who were spiritually dead and Jesus came and he gave us new life. That's what the Lord's Supper is all about. What we're doing this morning in a couple of minutes is we're going to celebrate the fact that Jesus loves the oppressed enough to die for them. How can I take communion and not care for the poor around me? And remember, as I said, what our witness does for those who see people doing something odd and caring for those who could never pay them back because they believe that's what God would have them do. Our last verse this morning is the sermon we had a couple of weeks ago. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, right? Everybody drives by and see, we can't put a blanket over this church. I know y'all outside can't see through the glass very well, right? Hi, y'all doing? Good. Um, but you see the building, right? It's pretty visible to you. Okay, right? We can't hide this thing. And people are going to have an opinion about God based on their opinion about Green Tree Community Church. What are we going to show them? What are we going to demonstrate? God's love and compassion, his grace and his mercy, or that he's indifferent, he's uncaring. A city set on a hill can't be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and give glory to your Father in heaven. Ultimately, it is enough to care for the poor, simply to care for the poor. You care for the simple by letting them fall down and skin their knees and not, not rescuing them and letting them learn. You care for the slugger by saying you really probably ought to think about getting off the couch. Right? But you care for the widow and the orphan. You care for the oppressed. We do that in order that we can relieve suffering can care for our fellow man who, who for whatever reason is unable to care for themselves. And in doing so, we remind ourselves of the grace of God that he's given to us, that he at great cost to himself redeemed us who could not redeem ourselves. And we point the world to Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father, I, uh, I pray that you would allow us to hear your word this morning. Father, it's easy to stand back and to be critical. It's easy to see the errors in others. It's easy to give myself a break when I, when I don't let others have a free pass on something that I see in their lives. Father, I pray that this wouldn't end up being a sermon about what we're not doing and we would just feel bad and be discouraged, but rather I would pray that it would be a message of hope of how you can use us in this world. And Lord, there's so many ways that Green Tree is already a generous church and a caring church and a loving church, and I thank you for that. 
But Father, I also know that all of us have blind spots. We can have blind spots as individuals. We have blind spots as a congregation. So I pray that you would protect us against forgetting the poor. I pray that you would protect us from ignoring the widow and the orphan and those who are oppressed. Protect us from thinking we're, we're too small. We're just one person or one little church. We can't do anything. And fix our eyes on, as you said in Deuteronomy, the, the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the mighty one, the redeemer. And as you have redeemed us and you have saved us and you have placed us in this generation to be a light shining for the gospel of Jesus and to be a, a people who would care about those who are left behind by the rest of society, that our hearts would overflow with love for you and care for others. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.